One of the disadvantages of being an exile, that is somebody living somewhere else without your nation, is the fact that you can be taken advantage of very easily. Now that's something we're going to learn today in the book of Esther. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery as we focus on Esther, an amazing book. That's the name of the book. Now her name was Hadassah, but anyway, we'll talk about that and more still to come. Right now, Corey is here with Ryan. Corey? Today, I'm going to be taking a look at the physical backdrop of Esther's life and even of Nehemiah's early life. We're going to be taking a look at the Persian palace at the city of Susa. Ryan? Well, I'm dealing with a very interesting question today. Was it right for Esther to take place in a beauty contest and become a part of the king's harem? Very interesting. Janice? Fun Friday wrap-up. I get to ask a question anywhere from Ezra all the way through to Nehemiah chapter 13. Esther 4, verses 1 through 14. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go in to the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law. Put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these thirty days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, 
Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Esther 1, 2, 3, and 4. Oh, this is a great book. I love this book. We continually go into new books here, and it's absolutely stunning. One of the challenges of being an exile is the very real danger of becoming a victim of hate. Hate is not something that should be natural to humans. It comes from our unchecked sin. In the book of Esther, we meet Hadassah, a Jewish young orphan who had been taken and raised by her relative Mordecai during the exile of the Jews. We learn much through the lives of Hadassah and Mordecai. We are able to see that even in the face of threatened annihilation, many of the Jews remained faithful to their God. We can see God's hand moving in these unusual circumstances within a foreign land. Hadassah literally wins her way into the king's palace as queen, and she is renamed Esther, a Persian name derived from the name of the famous goddess Ishtar. Without ever mentioning God directly, the book of Esther is a remarkable story about God's timely deliverance and redemption of his people from destructive hate. Now, this book brings us a message, a message of hope and a message of encouragement that we can trust God and we can trust God's unchanging character. Did you hear me say that? God's unchanging character. I remember talking with somebody and they were saying to me, well, when I was a kid, I thought this way and did that, but you know, things were different now and I grew up and I changed my character. And, and I thought that's interesting because God never changes his character. Keep that in mind. So our character may have changed, but God never changed his. Take your Bible guide and turn to today's passage. You can write or call and get one or go to Bible Discovery TV. Click on it. It'll take you to a donate page. Thank you so much for your donations. We really, really appreciate them. And uh, when you do that, it'll take you to a PDF file, which you can download and get the guide just exactly like we printed it. So it's amazing. For such a time. What's the rest of it for such a time? Well, we'll find out in just a minute. Esther chapter 4, 1 to 14. Father, I pray today as we read this book that you would help us to hear what it says. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing and show us your way and teach us your path here. And we thank you, Lord, for all of this. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we said together, amen and amen. Now, Esther is a wonderful book. Let's go forward from one, two, and three, and let's stop in chapter four. Chapter four is fascinating. Here's what happened, and I'll explain this after. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud, bitter cry, and he went as far as the front of the king's gate, 
for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and in ashes. What in the world are we talking about? Mordecai created a huge response to Haman and the king's decree. The king's decree? You see, we must remember what God's commands are and live by them. What had happened was Esther had won her way into being queen. And Haman, this man, hated the Jews. He hated them. And because Mordecai would not bow to Haman, who was the king's really second in command, would not bow to him. And so he determined to kill the Jews. And he set it out and he put out the message. He said to the king, let me do this. And the king said, yeah, whatever, because he was probably an alcoholic. And anyway, Haman sends out this decree and the Jews are commanded on this day they will be killed. Well, Mordecai hears that and that's what he's doing. He's reacting to it. So beloved, we need to remember that when things happen unusual, rather than, you know, just throwing our hands up and saying, we're all going to die and all of that, we pray. And when we pray, things happen. Watch this. Esther 4 verse 4. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her. And the queen was deeply distressed. And then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him. But he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. Wow. Mordecai reported Haman's plan to destroy the Jews. He told the truth. We must always remember to pray for the persecuted church around the world. The persecuted church. There's more people persecuted today than there's ever been. Now, this is good news because the church is growing overseas, not in North America, but it's overseas, it's growing. And so as it grows, more people are coming against it. Whenever you hear, well, they, you know, this people came against it, this people did that, that's because they're just praising the Lord and they've come to know Jesus Christ and the devil wants to stop them. But you see, we praise God. 360 million Jews or rather million Christians, we don't praise God they're being persecuted, but we praise God for the church growth. And we pray for the persecuted. God will help us, beloved. He will help us. Now, Esther chapter four, verses eight to 14. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her that, that he might command her to go into the king and make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king, who has not been called, he has to be but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out his golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go to the king in the king's 
these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai said, he told them to answer Esther, do not think that in your heart you will escape the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Now listen carefully. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai told Esther she was calm for such a time as this. We are not alone, beloved. God has us here to help each other as Christians. God has called us. If you can hear me, if you're breathing, praise God. You're one of us. You're a Christian. You're with us. You love the Lord. God has called us to be in the presence of each other for such a time as this. God is saving souls and winning people in Jesus' name. Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to. So as the book of Esther opens up, it does us the favor of really setting the stage for us, of letting us know exactly what's going on and where and when it is happening. So we learn that uh, Esther is, you know, she eventually moves into the Persian palace at the city of Susa. Now, luckily for us, there's been a lot of archaeological work that has gone on in that very palace. So let's see what we can learn about it. In modern-day Iran lies the ancient city of Shushan, known as Susa in English renderings of the Bible. Susa is the site of the famous story of Queen Esther. Its palace was also home to biblical Nehemiah and was envisioned by the prophet Daniel. Excavated for almost 100 years, the site of Susa has revealed her ruined Persian palace and royal city, showing students of the Bible that the Book of Esther must retain eyewitness reports of its function and layout. Today, some of the decorative palace remains are stored in the Louvre, including a foundation inscription that records where all the luxury building materials were brought from. The royal palace of Susa was built by Esther's father-in-law, Darius I, known to history as King Darius the Great. Darius constructed Susa as a winter capital of the Persian Empire. Here, he constructed a massive 12-acre terrace, upon which he built his monumental palace connected to the city of Susa by a large gate known in Esther as the King's Gate. To access the palace compound, one would have to cross a bridge over a river and walk through the King's Gate into a large courtyard outside of the palace. This system of the palace complex being separated from the city proper is reflected in the Book of Esther that distinguishes between the city of Susa and the citadel of Susa that should be identified as the palace complex. 
Inside the palace, the royal banquet hall has been identified. It was a pillared room whose elaborately decorated columns were 65 feet tall. This banquet hall saw the infamous feast of Xerxes when he drunkenly requested Queen Vashti's presence. It was also a main place of Nehemiah's work as cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. The very spot of the king's throne in this banquet hall has been identified by its stone base centered between the pillars of the room. The palace itself was organized in a more Babylonian style, incorporating three main courtyards that created a grand walkway through the palace on the way to the king's throne room. These courtyards would have been decorated with stone reliefs and glazed bricks, and they were separated by guardhouses. The Book of Esther indicates that the outer courtyard was the place that royal officials would come with their business and wait to be summoned by the king, as Haman providentially did. From the layout of the palace, it's easy to see that the king's throne, located in his great hall or throne room, would have had a direct line of sight to the inner courtyard, where Esther is said to have illegally come to request an audience with her husband. Esther herself would have come from the women's quarters, through the palace's middle courtyard, and into the inner courtyard, a route that can still be walked by modern visitors to Susa. You know, it really is amazing how the book of Esther lines up completely with the layout of the palace and the layout of the royal complex of Susa as revealed through archaeological work and excavation. You know, this is, this has been so striking to some scholars that they've said things like it's as if the author of the book of Esther was walking through the palace at Susa. So what, what this does for us is it lets us know that the book of Esther is really trying to be historically accurate. Now, this flies in the face of what other scholars, you know, scholars of literature can sometimes claim about the book of Esther, about it being, you know, a later made up story. Uh, if it was such, uh, then it was made up by someone who was very familiar with this ancient palace in Susa, walked around and knew how it functioned. It's very interesting. And today, of course, Iran and Iraq, those are two areas that are uh, covered in the ancient Bible here with the uh, Syrians and uh, very, very interesting. So uh, yeah, that's good, right? Yeah, well, today's reading is, of course, Esther's, Esther chapters 1 to 4, and some really take issue with what happens here. And that's because Esther takes place in a beauty contest and becomes a part of the king's harem. But was this morally right for her? Did God really approve of this? Well, let's study. The book of Esther in the Bible relates the story of a Hebrew girl in Persia born as Hadassah, but known as Esther, who becomes queen of Persia and thwarts a genocide of her people. Before she becomes queen, however, she must first participate in a pagan beauty contest and become part of the king's harem. This brings up a question of morality. Was it right for Esther to take part in such a practice? Would God really condone her actions? To answer these questions, we must start from the beginning of the story. Ahasuerus, the king, dethrones Queen Vashti for insubordination and then seeks out a replacement. He does this by issuing a decree that beautiful young virgins be sought out from among his kingdom and that after a full year of beauty preparations, they come before the king. Then whichever woman pleased him would become the new queen. 
Among these virgins was Esther, and it was she whom Ahasuerus chose to be queen. Esther 2.17 says that the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Meanwhile, the evil Haman, prime minister of Persia, begins to organize a Hitler-like mission of a Jewish genocide. However, the new queen, a Jew herself, though unbeknownst to the palace, is made aware of it and at the risk of her own life, exposes Haman's plot against her and her people. The king, enraged, then has Haman hanged on his own gallows. So was it right for Esther to take place in a beauty contest? And would God really condone her actions? The truth is that Esther probably had no freedom to refuse. Esther 2.8 seems to imply this when it says, Esther was taken to the king's palace. It is also important to understand that it was God himself who put Esther before the king, and he really had no other choice. It was either allow Haman to annihilate his people, or use Esther to bring him down. So what we see here isn't a problem morally because God is with Esther and uses her to protect the Jews from mass slaughter. Actually, it would be more of a moral issue if God allowed his people to be murdered. God knew the king would fall for Esther. The Bible describes her in Esther 2.7 as lovely and beautiful. And verse 17 says that the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight. So he set this royal crown on her head and made her queen. Remember, it's God that raises up kings and queens, not man. He is always in control. I think it's important to remember as well, and just to say this, uh, there are many uh, priests uh, and actually rabbis who do not believe that Esther was really a part of the Bible because it does, there's no mention of God in the book uh, and all of that. You have to go into the undercover version and you can see God in it. But they talk about Esther it's also about a woman, and they talk about that as that can't be. But Esther is a part of the Bible. And I find that fascinating, that God can work with the culture. And that we're not suggesting that the culture was good. We're not mm -hmm. suggesting that the king was great. We're not suggesting any of that. But here, Corey, you have somebody who is an exile in this kingdom, and Mordecai knew that she was beautiful. So, you know, the king had a a beauty pageant and she won that beauty pageant. God mm -hmm. gave her the grace and the wisdom. So somehow God is working through that. Look, if God waited for the perfect circumstances to interact with humanity, then he would never interact with humanity. Yeah. Our culture today is so messed up, even Christian culture. I mean, show me a church with actual people and you're gonna find messed up situations because we're humans, we're not perfect. Yeah. So if God had to wait for our situation to be totally perfect so that he could intervene and he could speak with us and move on our behalf, he never would. Yeah, and God is not the author of, of evil or, or immoral things, but mm -hmm. he will use them because he's sovereign and he knows end from the end from beginning, right? So yeah. he will, he'll, he'll use those things. Yep. It's like we saw the other day with, uh, with David, you know, being enticed. God allowed him to be enticed, yep. right? To number the people. God wasn't the tempter, but he allowed the tempter mm -hmm to influence David. One yeah. of the things that's important to remember is God allowed, mm -hmm. God permitted, God mm -hmm. allowed. And we see this with Job, all of Job's friends, and we'll get to this coming up, but all of Job's friends, they condemn him. You know, you shouldn't have done this, you shouldn't have done that. But Job didn't do anything. And he was trying to sacrifice daily for his 
kids and for that reason we believe his kids are in heaven and and all of that so it's important for us to remember that there's much of the picture we don't see there's the physical but there's much of the physical we don't see in the spiritual, which is why Paul said in Ephesians chapter six, yeah. we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual principles. I think it's it's really interesting to, to, to acknowledge that as people, we have a tendency to try to disqualify the actions of God that we're uncomfortable with. Mm. <laughs> and that's something that we have to face. Totally it is, agree. you know, mm-hmm. just because the book of Esther and, and the situations in it make you uncomfortable, you need to sit with that discomfort and figure out why it's making you uncomfortable and what it is about God's reactions to the situation that are making you uncomfortable. That would be a helpful thing to do and to go through. A not helpful thing to go through is like, well, I don't like this, so I'm just going to pretend it's not in there. That's not helpful. That doesn't help you uh, advance in your understanding of who God is, right? Exegesis versus exegesis. And I totally agree with that. Uh, And sometimes it's uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable and that's okay. Growing is uncomfortable. Yes, it is. And we're uh, coming out of time and that's more than uncomfortable. They'll just cut us off. You feel it uncomfortable? That's really interesting. Uh, Go ahead. Okay, so who said this? about the Jews rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. All right, looking for who said this. Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Was that Nehemiah that said that? Was that Sanballat that said that? Or was that Tobiah that said that? Which one said whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. All right. So I see and feel <laughs> we're, some discussion we're conferring happens. here. We're, we're conferring. And yeah. yeah, conferring. It's definitely so, not Nehemiah. No, it's he's a good guy. It's between the two skeptics there. Uh, yeah. Know, I threw in an easy one just to, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah it is an easy one. We so, can automatically say no. Yeah. But yeah. we, we yeah. think it's going to be C. Yeah, Tobiah. I think he. I think he's given that line, like that mouthpiece. Not sure why I think that, but that's what, I, that's what we think. So that's where they're going. I'll tell you what. <laughs> If you at home gave the same answer that Ryan and Corey did, you are absolutely right. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3. Now Tobiah the the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. I want to remind you Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 3.30 to 4.30 on Facebook and YouTube. We are live, man. We're doing the prayer meeting live, and it's exciting. Also, BibleDiscoveryTV.com. We're live there as well. I want to invite you to come and join us and pray with us and also bring your prayer request because God is moving. Today, we need to pray, Lord, help us to have the love of Christ for those around me, even those who make fun of me. In Jesus' name, and we said together, 